chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. This morning we'll be looking at a passage that I confess I have read over or similar stories like it dozens if not hundreds of times, missing its meaning, missing its depth. I trust and hope the Lord this morning will um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that he'll work through this broken, meager clay pot and that we'll get to see something of the Lord's contagious holiness. Luke 5, verses 12 through 16. Let's begin by reading Luke 5, 12 to 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. I don't know about you, I've read through these types of accounts. There's there's a number of them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of Jesus healing lepers and not thought much of it. Oh, well, Jesus has power over fevers and Jesus has power over demons. Apparently, Jesus has power over leprosy. And yet, given the setup in the book and its structure in this chapter, I think Luke has something far greater for us to see. The first hint is that Jesus has already referenced the only curing of leprosy in the entire Old Testament. And that was when Naaman, the Syrian, went to Elisha. And Elisha himself did not perform the healing, but rather told him to go bathe seven times in the Jordan. The second hint for us is its arrangement. This this section begins with no chronology. Um, It's even clearer in the Greek. It's simply it came to be, or it happened And so this account and verse 17, the healing of the paralytic and Luke 6, 1 and Luke 6, 6 all begin with just, and it came to be. And we know from harmonizing the Gospels that Luke has not put these in chronological order. He's not claimed to put them in chronological order. Remember, his statement to Theophilus at the beginning of the book was simply to set up an orderly account. So there is order, there is purpose, and it's not chronological. So what does Luke want us to see? I think to see what Luke wants us to see here, he's going to assume, and we're going to need to study our Old Testament. It's really a pretty simple story. You see the leper's plea of faith. We see the Lord's power of holiness, and we see the response, the Lord's pattern of dependence. But to really grasp what's going on, I think we need to go back, and if you turn your Bibles, please go back to Leviticus, that favorite of of Bible reading programs. This is about where people start to fall off, don't they, somewhere in March um, of their Bible reading programs. So they get to Leviticus, and it gets challenging. And yet all of Scripture, according to Peter, Paul, all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And according to 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written down for our instructions. Leviticus is a Christian book. It's a book for Christians. And yet, admittedly, we can often struggle with knowing how on earth is that the case. I also have to recognize my own um, dependence. It was at a message at Together for the Gospel in 2014 where I first saw this connection where Ligon Duncan taught this, and, and seeing that there, I'm going to attempt to show this biblical connection, this, this understanding and what it teaches about Christ that he did. Um, I, I owe a deep, deep gret, debt. Wow, that's not even a word. I owe a deep debt to Ligon Duncan for showing me in God's word how these things magnify the glory of Christ. Now, leprosy under the Old Testament was probably the worst possible disease you could have. The, the modern-day equivalent might be AIDS or Ebola. It was, it was terrible. And there's entire chapters of the Bible, Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14, Leviticus 15, deal with that because Israel's law, the, the, the law of Moses, not only governed the people nationally and morally and religiously, but it really governed every area of their life, including sanitation, including disease control and quarantine. This was a comprehensive law for the people of Israel. And so we need to understand that this man who the text says is full of leprosy is in a really pitiful and pitiable condition. Now, The term leprosy can, can, is an umbrella category. We'll see in reading some of this. It can cover a multitude of, of skin diseases, not simply modern-day Hansen's disease, although that's part of it, um, Paul Bach writes, the disease comes in various forms, creates lesions or swollen areas of skin that can attack nerves as well. Besides what is technically known as leprosy or Hansen's disease, the term could also um, refer to um, psoriasis, lupus, ringworm, or favus. So there's at least four things that... That, that happened, that, that we're to assume is going on in the person who has leprosy. And the first is leprosy afflicts. Leprosy afflicts. And I'm just going to read the first eight verses of Leviticus 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of the sons of the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area of the skin of his body. So this is sort of functioning as a health inspector. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white, um, has turned white, and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. If in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days, and the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the diseased area has faded, then the disease has not spread in his skin, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin, and he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest. The priest shall look, and if the eruption is spread in the skin, 
and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. So whatever's going on, and like I said, this is going to be an umbrella category for numbers of diseases. We're talking about eruptions of skin and lesions and sores that spread throughout the body. This, this is an affliction. First and foremost, there's suffering. There's pain. It can lead, in other cases, to withering of limbs. And this man, it's all over him. Full, Luke says. And Luke's a medical doctor. Luke says, full of leprosy. I imagine the notion is, is these lesions, this, this, this outbreak, this eruption of flesh all over the man's body. Secondly, though, leprosy not only afflicts, not only is it painful to have, not only is it, is it unpleasant, and unpleasant is too weak of a word, I, I, awful. Some, some Jewish commentators of the day described it as a living death. Secondly, leprosy defiles. Leprosy defiles. Not only is the person sick, but they are defiled according to the law. Jump a little ahead in Leviticus 13. Verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. It's interesting, of the many diseases in Scripture, leprosy isn't cured, it is cleansed. It's striking. James Edwards mentions this. Other diseases had to be healed. Leprosy alone had to be cleansed. There's a sense of contamination, a sense of defilement, uncleanness. I mean, you could be unclean a number of ways under the Mosaic Law. I'm not aware of any other situation where you have to announce it. You yourself have to be the megaphone, letting people know, stay away, I am defiled, stay away, I am unclean. This is what this man, if he was faithful in obeying the law, should have and would have been doing for his entire time with leprosy. Not only is his whole body broken out and eruptions of flesh, he has to wear ragged clothes and he has to announce his presence because he is defiled. Third, Leprosy not only afflicts, not only does it defile, it contaminates. We saw that already, didn't we, in, in chapter 13. The laws of the priest, if there's even a question that he has leprosy, you shut him up. You, you cut him off from the community. You, you shut him off. You, 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 you set him aside and quarantine him for a week, and then you check again. And if it looks like it's getting better, you quarantine him for a second week. You don't want to take any chances and this may seem harsh, but it's because leprosy spreads. It spreads in his own body. That's the, the mark of the disease. Does the, does the eruption stay localized or does it spread? So it not only spreads throughout the person's body, but it can spread to other people. It can, it can spread to all manner of things. Turn, turn to chapter 15 of Leviticus. Just give you an idea of how, uh, how contaminating this is. And in, and in 15, we're just dealing with discharges in general, of which we've already seen. Leprosy is one. 15, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean, and this is the law of his uncleanness for discharge, whether his body runs with the discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Now look at this. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And everyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever sits on anything on which one of the, on the one with the discharge is sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself and be uncleaned until evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And any saddle on which the one with discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that he was under him shall be unclean until evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Anyone to whom with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. An earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken. And every vessel of wood shall be rinsed with water. You get the idea of the contagion going on here? And this, this is part of God's goodness to Israel. He's dealing with, in the wilderness, two million or so Jews. And in a camp like that, disease, skin disease can spread, can ravage the people. You don't take any chances. If there's even a possibility the person has leprosy, you, you shut them away for a week, you take a look. If it doesn't look like leprosy, you shut them away for a week to confirm it, lest there be any chances, because this thing spreads. It spreads over the host's body and spread to others. Thirdly, fourthly, though, and this leads to the final point, leprosy exiles. Leprosy exiles. You know, you think about this in the plight of lepers in, in biblical times, one has to wonder what's worse, the, the ravaging of the body or being excluded from the camp and the people of Israel. We already saw that. Look back in chapter 13 of Leviticus, verse 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean. As long as he has the disease, he is unclean. He shall live alone. He shall dwell, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is written when Israel's moving along as, as a people and they set up camp and the camp provided protection and it provided a, a sphere for living and life and this person has to dwell in the harsh wilderness of Sinai outside the camp. Turn over to Numbers chapter 5, briefly. where this application is made. Here are the instructions for the person, but we see a specific example of this happening in Numbers 5. and This can be rough. Numbers 5, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel. They put out of the camp everyone who is leprous, or who has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. The people of Israel did so and 
put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. This, this is hard. I mean, this, this means shut out from the life of the society, shut out from protection. This happened to Moses' sister Miriam, if you remember, when she challenged Moses' right to lead. The Lord struck her with leprosy, and for a week she had to live outside of the camp. This is why a little later in Luke, chapter 17, lepers are standing afar off. Not only is their body ravaged and afflicted, and not only are they defiled, not only do they contaminate, their body's contaminated, their touch contaminates, they are fully excluded from the camp, from the people of God, from participating. They can't go to the temple. They can't offer sacrifices. This man is in a pitiable condition. And, and part of this is about God protecting his people. Part of this is God giving health laws. Part of this is also, as we saw in Numbers 5, God is holy and he dwells in the midst of his people. And because he's holy, the basic notion of holiness is separate, apart from that which is defiled, apart from that which is corrupted. Those that are defiled, those that are corrupted, need to stay outside the camp. This is the condition of the man. And anyone in Luke's day, anyone familiar with the Old Testament would be aware of that. This is a contagious man. This is a defiled man. This is a man who is to have no part in the community life. Now, turn back to Luke 5. It's also interesting to note that Leviticus 14 offers all sorts of prescribed rituals and things to do when someone is cured of leprosy. Jesus will, in fact, instruct this man after he cures him to to go and perform the rites. Nowhere is it told how to do that. God does not tell the priests how they can cure people. It's simply, if someone gets cured, here's what you do. Viewed as incurable. So unless the Lord does something remarkable, this is a life sentence. Full of affliction, defilement, contamination, being exiled. That's this man. Right after we see Peter falling at Jesus' feet, we see this corrupt, broken man. I don't think that's accidental. And I don't think that the words that come out of his mouth are similar to Peter's. Last week we saw Peter, the very first person in Luke, to address Jesus directly as Lord. Here's the second. Both men fall at Jesus' feet. Let's look at his powerful faith. This is a bold, bold man. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This is bold faith. It's arguable, in fact, he's even breaking the law here. He's not supposed to have contact with people. He's supposed to be outside the camp. He, he comes to Jesus. He, he falls down in front of Jesus. His, his faith causes him to overcome that. He is desperate for a cure, and he recognizes three things I'm going to see. First, he recognizes Jesus' lordship. He recognizes Jesus' lordship. He calls him Lord. Now, yes, the word can sometimes mean sir or master, but given that it's, it's put right after the first confession of Jesus as Lord by Peter, and, and given what he says, it clearly means Lord. In the all-caps sense, he recognizes Jesus' lordship. 
consequently understands who he is, and everything we looked at last week comes into play. Luke is, is ratifying this, the first confession in Peter, falling at Jesus' feet, confessing him as Lord. Here's the second, very next thing. Another man falls at his feet, confessing him as Lord. Not only does he recognize Jesus' lordship, but he recognizes Jesus' power. He recognizes Jesus' power. And this stands in stark contrast to what's come before. Because notice, he doesn't say, could you heal me? It's a given, according to this man, that Jesus has the power to heal him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He's saying the entire question that needs to be resolved is not can you, but will you heal me? No doubt in his mind. You have the power to do what no one in the Old Testament had the power to do. You have the power to do what no priest could ever do. Even Elisha himself doesn't cleanse Naaman, does he? He sends him to the Jordan, and Jordan bathes, and Naaman bathes himself. Naaman is clean. Now, this is bold and strong faith. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. In stark contrast, for instance, to the devil, chapter 4, verse 9, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Let's see you do this. Or the people in Nazareth. We want to see some signs. Show us what you've got. Do the works you did in Capernaum. Now, this man recognizes Jesus' lordship. He recognizes Jesus' power. He also recognizes his own unworthiness. It's interesting. There's a boldness present here, right? I mean, he comes in. He breaks social custom. He breaks the quarantine. He falls down at Jesus' feet. He's bold, and yet the boldness does not extend to some sense of privilege. He doesn't, and this is something we, we need to wrap around our heads around. He's, he's asking for grace. He's not demanding it. Haven't I put up with this enough? Hasn't it been long enough, Lord? Enough's enough, Lord. Simply, Lord, and, be, and being prostate is a sense of submission, surrender, worship. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't give any reason why Jesus should actually do that. Notice that. No argument. Simple confession. An implied request. He recognizes his own unworthiness. You and I might be tempted to think if we've put up with suffering like that for years and years, the affliction, the defilement, the contamination, being exiled... I know the man, I've, I've had this cold for three weeks, and I can be tempted to think, Lord, enough's enough. Come on. Then you read a passage like this. The Lord is merciful sometimes in the way he corrects us. This man doesn't, doesn't argue anything, he just needs grace. He recognizes, just like Peter, his own unworthiness. What does Peter say right before? Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Peter recognized that he was full of sin. This man recognizes that he also is equally unworthy, being full of leprosy. Now, at this point, I'd imagine anyone around Jesus would be shocked. This man who's so contagious, this man who is so defiled, this man who rightfully, according to the law, needs to be excluded from the camp, draws near to Jesus. And you saw how if you even touch a thing that he touched, you become unclean. 
And here he is right at Jesus' feet. I can only imagine anyone around there who knew who this man was, and I don't think you could help but know who he was since he's full of leprosy, would, would, would shudder, would draw back. Jesus doesn't. So now we're going to see the Lord's power of holiness, and first we're going to see his great compassion. Jesus does not recoil. And again, the closest comparison I can give you is something like Ebola or, or one of these diseases that you read about in the news every other week that are supposed to wipe us all out. Imagine somebody with that draws near to you. How might you react? Let alone simply the sight of this man must be disgusting. Jesus does not recoil Jesus does not run away, but he shows great compassion. The the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus, two words in Greek, I will be clean. But notice also Jesus says something remarkable, and Luke draws our attention to it. Now, we know that Jesus can heal simply by speaking, right? We saw that with Peter's mother-in-law. He rebukes the fever. Jesus not only doesn't recoil from this man, and Luke makes this point clear, he stretches out his hand and touches him. Now, assume you've read your Old Testament. Assume you're familiar with Leviticus. What does Leviticus say in at least 30 places now must happen? Jesus must become unclean. In addition to that, Jesus must run the risk of catching leprosy because the leper is contagious. He's defiled. He's a contaminant. And something amazing happens. Jesus, point one, does not become unclean, but rather the leper becomes clean. The reverse of what you'd expect to happen if you've read your Old Testament is what happens. What Leviticus tells us, what Numbers tells us, is if you come in contact with these things, if you come in contact with a saddle such a person sat upon, you become unclean. You become defiled. You become corrupted. Jesus doesn't become unclean. Jesus doesn't become defiled. Jesus doesn't become corrupted. Rather, The leper does, becomes clean. This is kind of a reverse contagion. That's why I titled this message Contagious Holiness. What's supposed to be so remarkable, what's supposed to be so amazing, what's never before happened in Scripture is rather than defilement being spread by touch, wholeness and holiness, cleansing is to spread by Jesus' touch. This is supposed to be jaw-dropping. That's why we spent the time going back into Leviticus because this is supposed to be hardwired. We know what happens. We've read our Bible. We know what happens when someone touches a leper. They become unclean, and possibly they need to be shut up for a week. And the exact reverse happens. I'm going to give you a quote from Ligon Duncan on this point. Who is this? Luke is screaming at you. 
This is a mediator who could do things that Moses couldn't do. This is a mediator who could do things the priests couldn't do. This is a mediator who could do things the high priest couldn't do. He can touch lepers and he's not made unclean, but they're made clean. Who is this? This is the Son of God made flesh. This is the only mediator of God's people. How can this be? How how can this be? God's word tells us what should happen. God's word tells us what should happen if Jesus touches this man. How is it that that does not happen? Well, turn, turn to Exodus 29. There is one antecedent in the Old Testament for such a concept. Actually, technically two. Look at Exodus 29. We're talking about the consecration of the altar. Start in the middle of verse 36. It's the instructions of the priests concerning the altar. You shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall appoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. You get that? The altar that the sin offering is made on, the altar that the sacrifice is made on, once it is consecrated, whatever touches the altar becomes holy. Holy. Go over to Leviticus 6. One other, one other thing has this same effect. The altar on which the sacrifice for sin is made makes holy. And so does the sacrifice. In fact, the blanks here Jesus is our altar and sacrifice. Pick it up in verse 24 of Leviticus 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. When its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. There's two things in the Old Testament that make things holy. The altar where sin offerings are made, once it is sanctified, and the sin offering itself, once it has been offered. What the rest of the New Testament makes clear is that altar and that sacrifice are all pointing to Jesus Christ. How can Jesus not be defiled? How can Jesus make this man whole? Because Jesus has that power, that holiness, that contagious holiness that the law was pointing to in the altar, that the law was pointing to in the sacrifice, in the sacrificial system. This is the one to whom the law and the prophets wrote and spoke. And this is why books like Leviticus and Numbers are books for Christians. Because unless you understand what's supposed to have happened here, you're not going to see what actually happens here and understand how Christ is coming, one who is greater than Moses, one who, of whom Moses and the prophets spoke, 
one who isn't defiled by sinners but makes this man whole. Okay. Jesus is our altar and sacrifice. Well, then Jesus, after cleansing this man, and notice it's immediate, absolutely immediate. Jesus commands this man to obey the law. He charged him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for them as a proof. People argue, why why did he tell him to tell no one? I, I think at this point it should be clear, Jesus is not looking to be recognized primarily for his miracles. In fact, he rebuked Nazareth. He'll later rebuke other people, saying it's a wicked and perverse generation that's looking for signs. Yes, he will do miracles and signs. Jesus understands his own mission as one of proclamation. The Lord, he said, his spirit has anointed me and commissioned me to announce and to proclaim good news to the poor, giving of sight to the blind. And this would be a rather remarkable and notable miracle with nothing in the Old Testament like it. When Miriam, Moses' sister, was struck with leprosy, the Lord gave her leprosy, the Lord took it away. Never in the history of Scripture is there a man whose touch spreads contagious holiness. Somehow word gets out, perhaps through the priest, perhaps from the man, perhaps from people who watched And what we'd expect happens. The Lord's pattern of dependence, Jesus' fame continues to grow. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. By the time we get to Luke 12, 1, they're trampling on each other. But notice the response of Jesus. Notice his pattern. The crowd wants to see him more and more. The crowd wants to get a hold of him more and more. They're waiting. They're bringing in their people. And the Greek makes it clear, this is Jesus' custom. He would, or he continued to withdraw desolate places and to pray. Jesus had a public ministry to perform, but Jesus' public ministry was fueled by the pattern of his private ministry. The strength of Jesus' public ministry came from the pattern of, and his dependence of his private life. And he made room for it. And frequently he had to work at it to make room for it, because people would search him out. We've already seen that at the end of of Luke chapter 4. When he finished doing the miracles at Capernaum, what happened? The next morning he gets up, he goes to a desolate place, the people find him. Jesus was a man of prayer. When he received the Holy Spirit, he was in prayer in fellowship with his Father. I also imagine Jesus is, this is his time to meditate on the Word. You notice Jesus doesn't have his own Bible on him. And when he goes to the, that's because most people, especially working class men, don't own Torah scrolls. They're rather expensive in that time. So when Jesus goes to the synagogue, there's a scroll there. But the one snapshot we see of Jesus' life When he's in the temple, what's he doing? He's studying, he's reading, he's studying, he's reading. I would imagine at this point, Jesus has memorized the entire Old Testament. That was pretty much the standard for the Pharisees, from what we can understand from extra-biblical sources. You never see Jesus saying, it's around here somewhere, hold on. It's just, it is written, it is written, it is written. And so he goes away to pray. I believe he goes away to meditate on God's word. 
And we see this pattern that even as more and more people want a part of him, as more and more people want to see him, and he does have something for them. He does have a public ministry to accomplish. He recognizes that the power of his public ministry comes from the pattern of his private. Well, quickly, I want to I make four points of application here. Four points of application. Now, I said earlier that the, the laws governing leprosy served a purpose in, in protecting the people from a health hazard. There's a, there's a sense in the real sense in which it's a quarantine. But there's another purpose of these laws. And as you read through Leviticus and Numbers and your Bible reading plans, there's another purpose. We got a hint of that in, in Numbers 5. Why do these people have to go outside the camp? Because God is in the center of the camp, and otherwise they would defile the camp. In other words, all of these laws about clean and unclean are meant to communicate to Israel the holiness of God over and against our sinfulness. This is why in Psalm 51, after David has killed a man, what he cries out for is, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's, he's using language of cleansing and cleaning. Why? Because his sin is like a defilement and it's like a stain. It's like, dare I say, a leprosy. In Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah writes this, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of your and my righteous deeds are like a garment that if someone else touched it, they'd get polluted. That's our best deeds. Our best deeds, your best day, is so filthy that if someone else touched it, they'd get contaminated. Were to quote John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. There's enough sin in my best prayer to damn the world. What we need to do is first recognize your own spiritual leprosy. Recognize your own spiritual leprosy. What is leprosy a picture of? It's like all of these laws, it's a picture of sin. And like all of Jesus' miracles, the miracle is meant to point to the spiritual reality. There's two spiritual realities. One, Jesus is greater than Moses. What he offers is a greater cleansing than the law. The law had no prescription for how to cure and cleanse lepers, but Jesus does. But secondly, it's it's the picture that, that Jesus can cleanse from sin. If that's not made clear here, it's made explicit in the next story. Next week, we'll see the story of the paralytic. And what's striking about the story of the paralytic is Jesus initially doesn't heal him. He simply says, when they lower him down on ropes, your sins are forgiven. And then, because he knows the Pharisees are thinking in their hearts, who does he think he is? Okay, to prove it to you that I can do this thing, get up and walk. The the physical miracles are always meant to attest to the spiritual reality. Just like in chapter 4, the healings of the demoniac and the healing of of Peter's mother-in-law and the sick is confirming that Jesus is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And so all of this picture of of clean and unclean and, and being able to approach God and being outside the camp is all meant to communicate to us our spiritual leprosy because truly... Our sin afflicts us as we are pulled to and fro by the desires that wage war within us, as we suffer the consequences of sin. 
Our sin defiles us. Our sin contaminates. It has spread to every area of us. And does not our sinfulness exclude and exile us? Separate from God. Listen to the language of Romans 3. And the totality, just as this leper is covered from head to toe, full of leprosy, in Romans 3, Paul weaves together a pastiche of quotations from the Psalms to describe the state of you and myself outside of Christ. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. You get that? We've got mouth. We've got tongue. We've got lips. We've got feet. It's totality. We are not good people who do bad things. We are not, to use the medical analogy, healthy people with a little sore, a little outbreak. But we are ravaged head to toe by the defilements of sin. Our hearts, our innermost being, corrupt, broken, perverse. We need to recognize your own spiritual leprosy. See, I don't think the leper's fundamentally saying anything different than Peter. It's not visible with Peter. Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And then we get the, the illustration in the very next encounter that Luke gives us. What Peter is saying, I'm a sinner, is what this man is in front of Jesus. It's what you and I are. Second, we should follow this man's example and call upon the Lord who is mighty to save. Call upon the Lord who is mighty to save. If that truly is our condition, if you and I are people who are not a little sick, but ravaged with a disease, isn't it wonderful that there is a Savior who can heal and redeem? Isn't it marvelous that we have someone greater than Moses? Isn't it wonderful that we have someone greater than the former high priest? We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Son of God. Now listen... Remember, Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is the altar. Listen to Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify, is that word, we need purification, our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. What he said is, if these blood of bulls and goats could offer a temporary purification of being unclean, how much more will Jesus Christ? And then a little further in Hebrews 13, now listen to this language. This is the type of stuff I've read through a number of times, completely missed, went right over my head. Hebrews 13:10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You see, lepers like you and I are excluded. The lepers had to go outside of the camp. And Jesus, when he was crucified, was not crucified in the city of Jerusalem, but outside, the author of Hebrews is making that point, Jesus has gone out to where we are. And Jesus is mighty to save. He is the altar that makes holy. He is the sacrifice that atones for sin. And we would do well to have the boldness and the humility of this leper and call upon Jesus to save. Moreover, point three, believe that Jesus has both the power and will to cleanse. The leper's question in his mind is not can you, but will you? Because not only does Jesus offer us a salvation, but he truly offers us a cleansing. And perhaps when we start to get the weight of our sin, we can doubt this. I'll read another quote from Ligon Duncan. We have got to believe that Jesus knows what to do with defiled people when they come to him. When the weight of defilement and the sense of the holiness of God comes upon us, what do we say? We say things like, I I don't think that there's any way that my defilement can be dealt with. And in that moment, we need to believe that Jesus knows how to deal with defilement. Maybe there's some sin, some secret in your past, something that you've done, and you think, what, what, what can this Savior do for me? Listen to the language of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God because they all need to go outside the camp. I, I added that in. But listen to this. And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. That laundry list of sins that will, undealt with, exclude you from fellowship with God and exclude you from heaven. He writes to these people who engage in all those things and worse. You've been cleansed, he says. You've been washed. You've got a Savior who can accomplish this. So call on him to save and believe that Jesus really is a great enough, mighty enough Savior to cleanse and to heal. We can change. And finally, for those of us who have called upon him, for those of us who are calling upon him to cleanse and change us, ought we not to follow his pattern of prayer and feeding on the word? If the sinless Son of God depended upon a life of prayer and quiet time with God, how much more do diseased, leprous people like you and I need to get on our knees before God every day? 
If he couldn't make it through the work God gave him to do apart from regular times and carving it out, it wasn't accidental. He'd have to go find desolate places. And how much more do we need to follow in his pattern? I'm going to call the worship team up for our final song. This is a marvelous Savior. What we have in this passage is something unprecedented in Scripture. We have one with contagious holiness, one who is not contaminated when he comes in contact with the unclean, but that which is unclean becomes clean when it comes in contact with him. And we're going to close by singing, I think, a very fitting song, Mighty to Save.